Have you heard about the Cosmic restaurant opening up in the Midwest here? Yes, I have. Cosmic, C-O-S-M-C. It is a different type of McDonald's that they're launching. Okay. It's a, a McDonald's that is more aligned to what a Panera or a Starbucks is in terms of offering coffee drinks, breakfast sandwiches, and some you know enhanced menus. It still takes everything you get from McDonald's, but now it's designed to be really a fast food breakfast type of place. Is there a need for this? It's very much top secret on the McDonald's side of the house, but a lot of interest in some of the consumers in those marketplaces. Are we just getting to a place of saturation of options? Companies are always looking for product extension. Even the CEO of McDonald's said, we need to introduce a small format concept with all the DNA of McDonald's but its own unique personality. I'm just irritated that I can't get the full menu. Well, the good news is this Cosmic restaurant is opening up right next to a regular McDonald's. That's good, because there's no overlap there. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 360 of Touchpoint. Reed Smith, that's Chris Boyer. I'm just sitting over here enjoying a, uh, an egg McMuffin. McFlurries, does that happen at this? I mean, is it like if you... Can you get breakfast-related flurries? I would assume that they offer, at this new store, McFlurries with coffee in it. Of course, good chances the ice cream machine's broken. True, true, true. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in for another episode of Touchpoint. We certainly appreciate the support. Uh, a couple of quick plugs, a couple of quick uh, announcements before we get to today's episode. The TPS report, you can find that over at touchpoint.health, which is our website, if you sign up for that, you will get one email a week, most weeks, I should say. Sometime holidays, we'll uh, skip. But uh, one email a week, five articles, hopefully a little value add for you, the listener. Part of that email, you will see in there something about an end-of-year survey, a little button. You click it. You get to go take the survey. Super helpful for us. Gives us a little bit of feedback, a little bit of insight. Also, you get to vote on who wins what award and all that kind of fun stuff. So, Episodes we enjoy doing at the end of the year, but but most importantly, would love feedback from you. So again, touchpoint.health is the website. We'll pause here, let you go do that. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And read, consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. And be back with today's show. So today's episode, Reed, we're going to focus in on something that I think many of us in healthcare started all way back when, when we were talking about meaningful use. Do you remember meaningful use? Yes. I think I even have a book on it, like a printed piece of publication. Yes. On meaningful use. Well, I, I remember, and I, we've talked about it years ago on this show, but uh, I remember calling meaningful use as neither meaningful nor useful for the patient. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, that rings a bell now. Right, yeah. right. So we talked about that before. But in this particular case, the whole point of meaningful use was some kind of arbitrary metric to get patients to start accessing their patient portal records. It was to really hasten the adoption of, of electronic medical records. 
And this was like many, many years ago, 10, 12, 15 years ago when they had it. Well, a couple of years ago, a new law came into effect called the Cures Act. And the Cures Act is sort of like a reset of what meaningful use was supposed to be, but it actually took the perspective of what the patient's needs are. And the underpinning of it was to really enhance patient access and ownership of their medical records. Before we jump into the topic at at large, let's do a really quick overview of this Cures Act and how it was intended to do this. So a couple of years ago, this this was signed into law, and there's really three key provisions. The first is information blocking. So the Cures Act prohibits healthcare providers and IT developers from engaging in, quote-unquote, information blocking, which means intentionally uh, inferring with the access exchange or use of electronic health information. What this really does is ensures that patients have timely access to their EHRs, including the clinical notes, testing results, billing information, etc. Yeah, another thing is the Cures Act put a requirement on providers to provide patients with electronic copies of their electronic health record upon request without a charge. And I remember way back when, we, they used to charge us for that, right? You couldn't get your health information without paying the hospital for, for doing that. 10 cents a copy, 10 cents a copy, yeah. And, and then there was one other uh, provision, right, Reed? Yeah, open notes. And this was really an encouragement that healthcare providers make those clinical notes available to patients in some sort of a secure, electronic, accessible format. Again, kind of goes down the uh, the vein of transparency, and uh, hopefully that folks could you know take more control of their health, you know, understanding you know what's going on. Yeah, so we're going to dive into a couple of articles that kind of show how it's worked. But overall, I would say that the Cures Act has been somewhat successful. It's had a, a positive impact. It's helped patients improve the understanding of their health conditions, uh, get more involved in their care decisions enhance communication with their providers, and basically open up the ability to have a a greater ability to manage their health themselves. But let's get into the actual data, and we'll do that through a series of articles that kind of highlight surveys that have been done. We found some good resources, uh, uh, patientengagementhit.com. It's a great resource just in general, but a lot of what we'll talk about came from a couple different pieces there. So they talk in part about the fact that patient data, that the access is at an all-time high, which I guess would be somewhat true, right? Because this kind of aggregates over time. I guess you could potentially stop accessing. But in any case, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT that is the thing, is showing three in five patients being offered and accessing their digital health records by the way of a patient portal. Okay, so three in five. Uh-huh. 60%. Mm-hmm. That's your all-time high. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I guess that's good. That's a positive. That's more than half. In the findings, you know, following the full rollout of patient data access rules under the 21st Century uh, Cures Act, it said that, you know, indication that the information blocking provisions under the law may be working to you know, improve this, right? That may be, I guess, showing that this is actually working. This is kind of what is actually causing that. Yeah, well, let's get into some of the numbers, right? Because the, the report showed that patients are more likely than ever not to just be offered, but also access their health information. So 57% of patients were offered and accessed medical records and patient portals. Three quarters of them were offered access, so uh, 73%. Those figures are considerably up from 2020, where only 38% of patients were offered and accessed their health information. So that is a significant jump, right? Yeah, and they, they go on to further explain that uh, there's there's a pretty good spike in the app-based patient portal utilization. I, I guess you can attribute some of this to my chart, right, and my chart adoption and just the proliferation of that. But it says near 51% of patients saying they use this medium to, to access their data, which is up from 38% uh, back in 2020. However, on the flip side, a number of people solely looking at their digital medical records on web-based platforms shrunk from 60% to 48%. You'd have to kind of net that out for me, maybe a little bit, right? But I can understand, I mean, it's just like any web utilization, you know, app-based 
mobile based is is going to be you know trending in a higher performance direction than desktop it will be anyway. Yeah, it's also duly noted, and the article doesn't point this out, but think about this, right? Uh, this is happening over the pandemic, where more and more patients also went online to transact their care, right, through telemedicine and other places. And many of them, more and more people have smartphones. So I think this kind of aligns with sort of like other trends that are happening in the, in, you know, in the greater space that are kind of maybe impacting this. But what are they doing, Reed? when they access their information. If you think about this, it's like, why would you? Yeah. To some extent, it's going to depend on the acuity and who you are. If you think about the fact that the, and I'm just, I'm kind of riffing here for a second, but if you think about the fact that the, the majority of people are doing this via mobile or an app or something like that, they're really looking at it and they talk in here about the fact that they're looking to view test results or something to that effect, and that transmitting their records is far less common. It says near 70% of patients looking at their clinical notes. It's interesting, right? Again, I think you're looking for an answer is kind of the thematic piece here. It could be bill pay, quite honestly. I see that a lot, too, is you're able to do some of these things through what is considered the portal. That's another way to kind of look at this. They went even further into the data. They said, well, only 21% of patients said they didn't access their own medical records at all within the past year. 25% reported accessing them once or twice and three to five times each. So that's half of it, right? 25% doing it once or twice, another 25% doing it three to five times. And more than that, 29% of patients access their medical records six or more times. Over the past six months, clearly there's more and more activity to get access to your information, right? Yeah. And, and then go on. And again, some of this is like, well, yeah, I mean, that seems pretty like common sense, right? It's, sure. you know, part of the call out here is that, you know, the performance around some of this is by patients that access the care system or their providers or seeing their providers more frequently, right? Like well, people with chronic conditions. Well, sure. Like if you're a high utilizer of the medical system, then it would seem to reason you would then also utilize the technology, the patient portal that kind of goes along with it more. Moreover, if you're doing it through a mobile device because of the convenience and ease of doing that, assumptively, right, they are seeing their medical records more frequently. 40% of patients using a web-based way to access their medical records did so once or twice in a year. And far fewer app users said the same. 26% said that. Conversely, 42% of app users looked at their patient portals six or more times a year compared to just 28% of web-based portal users. So again, there's this kind of this, this action of now you're giving access to that information. Of course, more people are going to access it. Now, whether they're Utilizing it to do things, I think that's a little bit different. But then the article ends with two unrelated studies or reports that came out that actually indicate immediate patient data access does not help with overall experience. Let's quickly touch on those. That's interesting, right? First, in JAMA, they showed that a number of unsolicited patient complaints related to communication, documentation, treatment, diagnoses, etc. increased after the Cures Act went into place. So patients were complaining that, you know, seeing a test lab result really created more harm than good, right? It confused them because they didn't know what they were looking at in a lot of times. And like much of anything, if you don't understand it, especially if you're talking about your health, it potentially drives, they call it in here, anxiety, but just kind of that uncertainty of like, well, hang on a second. What? So I am okay? Or what is this thing, you know? I'm seeing words in here I don't know, and it sounds to me like this is really bad. And it's like, well, no, you're fine. It's just this confusion. Yeah, and another report from the from uh, about radiation oncology showed that getting immediate access to test results, it's okay, but it's better to have doctors discuss it with patients prior to mm-hmm. them reading it because they get confused by it. Right? Don't get me wrong. They they the are the report said that stress levels went down when they had access to their test results, but those stress levels lowered further when patients could collaborate with their doctors about their results. 
So access isn't the only thing that's going to solve this need for uh, getting your patient records. It's really what do you do with it and how does that interact with the normal care path? Well, let's take a brief pause and let's come back and we'll, we have another report to jump into in an article that's entitled as a tease, patient data access is insufficient for 60% of healthcare consumers. So after the bump, we'll come back and we'll dive into that article. All right. So do people really want access? Depends on who you ask, I guess. But is the access they're getting actually any good to some extent? So again, like you mentioned before the break, a little piece of research here around that 60% of healthcare consumers say that patient data access is actually insufficient. Yeah. And this is based on a study that was conducted by Propeller Insights on behalf of Carta Healthcare. They surveyed more than 1,000 U.S. patients. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. And it showed overall that patients have a strong interest in their medical records and prioritize providers that offer greater patient data access. So again, this whole concept of access is important. Yeah, because again, they they revealed in there that 60% of consumers uh, say they don't have adequate access, right? And under HIPAA, patients have the inherent right to access their own health information, accessing records, et cetera. Obviously, that's a good thing, creates some level of connectivity and involvement in your own care. But if people are saying, like, I I don't have good access or I can't get to what I need, uh, that's where some of this starts to break down. Yeah, and break down in the overall patient experience and engagement. So again, this report said that health information provided by doctors and healthcare facilities is a priority for 74% of respondents. And of those respondents, 45% of them stated they would likely recommend a healthcare provider that offers this easy access to their patient data. So that's seemingly a good thing, right? Like uh, providing access is going to make you referable to other people. I like this so far, but the data goes deeper, right, Reed? It, it does, and they they underscored the need for more education. 15% of folks that they talked to were unaware if they had patient data access. Right. So in just over two thirds indicated that they're unsure where their health data is stored after they leave the provider's office. So some of this is just even, yes, we have portals and we talk about all these things, but a lot of folks out there agree that this should be a thing and they should have access, but don't know if they do or where it is. Yeah, I know. And so this is where it gets a little bit tricky, right? Because now what we're doing is we're intersecting this drive towards, you know, providing more access with what the reality is of the consumer. And quite frankly, the consumer is confused. There's even some data here that shows that patients have a mixed understanding of who owns their data. So listen to this, Reed. 47% of patients believe they own their data. That's good. That's almost half. 24% said the healthcare facility owns the data. 16% said the doctor owns the data. And 13% stated that the registry used to store the data as ownership. So in this particular case, like maybe Epic or whatever the patient portal is. So they don't even know who owns the data. I mean, is that good that only 47% believe they have ownership? I don't guess it's believe they should have ownership, but they're saying 47% actually think that they currently have ownership of their health data. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, You would want that to be higher, certainly. I would have thought that would have been higher. And I think the whole concept of data ownership is, in part, if you feel like you own your data, then you actually feel like you have more 
involvement in how your care is, right? I mean, if you're feeling like the doctor or the or the health system has it, you're kind of like letting them steer the ship, so to speak. If you feel like you own it, maybe you have more skin in the game. Yeah, I mean, for sure, yes. I don't know. These are this is interesting. Um, obviously, security is a big issue, which is something they call out in here with nearly three quarters of folks saying that is a that that should be the top priority or is the top priority for patients. However, they say despite the concern for data security, seventy one percent of those that were surveyed were open to sharing their data. Okay. If that improved like outcomes and in, in that kind of thing. So what does that mean? I mean, I think you're only concerned if, if you're concerned, right? So it's like, <laughs> it's a big deal when it happens or, or something like that. Right. I mean, I think everybody thinks that they are, or want to talk about privacy or security. I, obviously I want my data protected all my data, not just my health data. I want anything I do online protected and safe. I don't want people to access it. But you and I both know that's not how the world works. And particularly when I'm also really leaning heavily on letting Google uh, passwords, you know, kind of let me log into this application, this application, I'm freely sharing my login information, you know, from one platform across many other uh, applications. And that kind of runs counter to the fact that I want all my data to be safe. Because the world is not, this whole concept of data security in today's modern digital world is not really there. Again, we live in a world of convenience, whether it's a specialized McDonald's that offers breakfast only (laughs) or otherwise. But I mean, that's, that's really what the most important thing is to us. Uh, until it, until it's not, you know, but convenience is where we drive towards. And so I think, again, yes, I mean, we're saving passwords and letting browsers log in for us and things like that. Because either one, we don't think it's really going to happen to us or two, just the idea of convenience outweighs any other consideration. And, and I think a part of it is, too, who do we trust with this data. So let's turn back to healthcare data. A 2020 Deloitte Insights report showed that patients became warmer to patient data sharing between healthcare providers only after COVID-19. Before COVID, I think we still were suspicious about how do we share our, our healthcare data online. And then we realized, hey, we could get care this way. We could do telemedicine, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That I guess this is safe. And yeah, I'll share my data with with healthcare stakeholders. Yeah, I mean, again, the benefit outweighs the concern. And then in a more interesting finding, Deloitte found that patients are more willing to participate in patient data sharing with entities like payers and providers. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Again, there's an inherent benefit there. This Deloitte study didn't get into sharing it with like big tech companies, but as we talk about more and more entrants into the health space that are access and convenience based for the healthcare consumer, I wonder if they feel the same way about Amazon or they feel the same way about sharing your health data with even a third-party broker company like an EMR company. If, if they knew that, you know, that EMR companies were using their data for other purposes, do you think consumers would give pause and say, look, I, I think it's okay to share with my doctor and my health system, but I'm not sure I want to share it with a third-party company? I, you know, it's like, not to skirt the question, but it's like, it depends on who you ask, I guess. I think so much of this varies by person and acuity and kind of what their individualized health journey is, right? But I mean, I think ultimately... This whole concept of accessing your healthcare record is a good thing. It's something patients are doing. How they're using it, I'm not really sure. You know, I think this jury's still out. I think they're still trying to find value. And part of that is because we're sharing the information that's in an electronic medical record with the advent of some of these AI tools to help you better contextualize and create action on your health data. Maybe they'll become more and more involved and become active participants in their health as we go. And then, you know, if they can overcome this whole concept of like, it's safe to share and we want to we want to be able to share that data among all these healthcare entities, I think we're going to see this concept of patients wanting access to their healthcare records taking a different form as the years progress. That's my thought. Yeah. Stuff's going to become easier, 
more user friendly, uh, more convenient, more beneficial. I mean, again, and two, it's going to be the expectation for a lot of folks, right? I mean, they're used to this again in the rest of their their world, the rest of their life, and so this is this is no different. Well, I think this leads naturally to an interview I had recently with the CEO of a company called HealthBook Plus, which its whole purpose is to provide patients access to their healthcare records. Chris Turner, uh, someone I've known for years, actually in the space, he, uh, he in January of 2022. He launched a company called HealthBook Plus. It has an interesting origin story, too, which we talk about in the interview. But we really kind of double-click in on why he was compelled to launch this platform for consumers that uh, allows them better access via the patient portal through his platform to access and act upon their health records. So after the break, we'll uh, go to that interview, and then you and I will come back at the end of the show to close it out. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am excited to talk to not only a fellow Chris, but someone I used to work with way back when, and that's my friend, Chris Turner. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris Boyer. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. We Chris's have to stick together, don't we? Heck yeah, we do. <laughs> but we've known each other for a little bit, and I'm really excited about us talking today uh, about our topic at hand. But before we jump into that, you know, it might be good for people listening in who don't know you to for you to share a little bit about your background and you know what led you to what we're going to talk about today. Oh, I love it. So uh, we'll start life as a adult started out as a corporate pilot. And very quickly realized that I need a little more brain stimulation than what happens in the cockpit of an airplane. So decided to get into, of course, healthcare, right? Logical jump. Answered a blind down the newspaper for a pharmaceutical job and worked for a really amazing pharmaceutical company for 12 years, doing everything from marketing brand teamwork to sales leadership and also leading teams of PhDs and MDs to help residents understand disease state management to where I, I jumped and went to the startup world, where that's where I met Chris Boyer here. And you know, we worked together to uh, build health grades to what it is today. And you know, I feel like guys like us really started the foundation there. So helping people find the best quality in their particular area or maybe for their parents outside of their area. Such a great mission, but uh, been in digital health ever since. Uh, mostly startups, working with companies like Medici, building the WhatsApp for healthcare, um, all on the growth side. And then uh, met a couple of guys in Greece that were trying to solve a problem with seafarers on the ship being in the middle of the ocean and not having any real information on those folks and trying to figure out how to best help when they're sick. So um, I'll tell you the story because I think it's really interesting. The way that it works for the seafarers is uh, they typically take a pre-boarding physical and most of them don't necessarily tell the truth on it because they want to get the job to be on the ship. And that's the only health information that these seafarers have. So if there's an issue and a doctor needs to get get involved, the only information they have is that pre-boarding physical. You imagine you're a seafarer in the middle of the ocean. Most of the times they don't speak the same language as their captain, but if they get sick, they have to tell the captain that they're sick. The captain then sends an email to the doctors on land who send an email back to the captain to try to treat the seafarer with whatever they have on the ship. And this goes round and round. You can see where it's going. Oftentimes the ship gets diverted, which costs the ship owners a lot of money, probably averaging close to a million dollars. So a guy that I met in, in Greece, his name was Stathis. He owns a shipping company and one of his really good friends is a GI doctor. And they were like, hey, we want to start a company to help with these seafarers and get all the information on your phone. So if there's an emergency or some issue in the middle of the ocean, the doctors can truly actually help them because they know more history about the individual. And that's where HealthBook Plus started. You know, I, of course, said, hey, that's cool. However, millions of companies, not millions, but a lot of companies in the U.S., like big ones like Microsoft, have tried to do this and they failed. The only way I see we can really make this successful is if we add in other technologies and a lot more data sources on top of it. 
And that led to Health Books Plus. That's right. Yeah, that's a kind of an interesting story. I like that kind of origin story. You know, although we're not all seafarers, many of us uh, as consumers, as healthcare consumers, we sometimes feel like we are seafarers and trying to kind of navigate our health information. And you are indeed right that uh, big companies have tried it before and they didn't, they weren't very successful. Uh, you know, I think what it speaks to, Chris, is this bigger trend that's happening around healthcare consumerism. And certainly since the pandemic, consumers are using digital more and more frequently to make care decisions. And I would say that by extension, they're also using it to kind of collect all of their health information in a easy to consume way. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that. Like what, uh, do you, are you seeing that trend play out here? And, and why is this important? Why is the time now right for patients to get access and control of their health data? Definitely, we've been seeing a trend. What's really interesting to me is it's really more that millennial and younger folks that seem to be pushing the trend. You know, I know my kids are in their mid-20s and they don't have a primary care doctor and they don't ever care to have a primary care doctor. They want to have all their information in one place so that they can go to the Minute Clinic or One Medical or Telemedicine and get immediate care because it's more convenient. And so having all of that access to their health data is really important for them to be able to be the owner of it. The other thing that's really cool is uh, out of the 2020 Cures Act, specifically the open notes component, the government finally decided to say who really owns health data. You know, the hospitals were always saying, hey, we own the patient's health data, so we're going to make it really tough for them to get it. The clinic said, no, we own it. The insurance company says, no, we own it. And the patient was trying to get it was super difficult. So now with the Cures Act, the government says, nope, patients own it. And matter of fact, if you treat a patient, you have to give them access to their medical records electronically. I always find that to be weird, the right to have that debate about who owns your medical record. Because to me, I always felt I was the owner of it. But the, I remember at times where I would I, I'd be moving and I would ask for my medical records. And at one point, the dentist wanted to charge me for it. And, and they said, but just give me the name of your new dentist and I'll send it to them for free. And I'm like, wait a second, it's my data, right? I own it. So that's interesting. The, the Cures Act certainly was sort of the precipice to, to get us there. And it's, it's caused a lot of things to happen around that. But I think that we're also seeing uh, consumers like taking more and more of their own health and wellness into hand themselves with the adoption of like Fitbits and other wearable devices too, don't you think? Oh, for sure. And so and what we've decided is we need to get as much data as possible on an individual to be our foundation, to really be this health, health facilitator that leverages AI to direct people to their next best health action. So what we've done is we connect to electronic health records. We connect to payer claims data. We purchase socioeconomic data. And then we also connect to wearables like Fitbit to Apple Health, Garmin, and Google Health, as well as some glucose monitors. But we've got the ability to connect to over 500 different remote patient monitoring and fitness devices as well. And soon we'll be adding genetics. So having this data picture that's very rich with the individual in the center allows us to do all kinds of really great things with helping guide people, even if it's just a simple annoying tasks of, hey, when do I need my next checkup or preventative component? All of this data exists, but it exists in many different places, right? I have a, I have an Apple Watch, right? So I go into my Apple Health device. I have a glucometer because I'm a type 1 diabetic. I go to that. It keeps information in a different system. I go to my EMR. It goes to another system like that. You know, like it's all over the place. And I think it would be incredibly useful and you know to to get it all into one place but why haven't health systems done this because you would always think the health system through their EHRs they could accomplish this why is it so hard for them to do it my perspective in working with health systems a long time is they've got the we're at the center of everything approach into patient engagement versus putting the patient at the center so you know part of the challenges are they spend a lot of money on their electronic health records and their patient portal. And so they want their patients to use their patient portals, even though they might be very fragmented with the other patient portals that 
where patients receive care. In my mind, it would behoove health systems to really put the patient at the center and give them a platform to put all of their health information, regardless if the care took place in their health system. Because if they're the ones that are helping people get to their best health, I think people will be more more loyal to them. I think you're right. I mean, uh, but I wonder if we as healthcare consumers have that kind of longstanding relationship now with health systems. I think about it this way, Chris, I'll mention a, a personal story of mine, right? I go to one health system for my regular care, my diabetic care, et cetera. My son goes to a different pediatrician that's in a different network. They're on a different EMR entirely. They're a private you know, uh, pediatric clinic, and they have a completely different other medical record, and I can't get the two of those systems to work together to share information. I mean, I would love to have all of it within one place. And then, you know, heaven forbid, I go get care outside of network and another place that maybe even has the same brand of EMR or EHR that, that, that mine does. You still have two different instances and two different data sets. This data interoperability issue is profoundly challenging for us. Oh, without a doubt. And even we connect about 85% electronic health records in the U.S., so, you know, even with that level of coverage, we still have a lot of gaps. So we allow people to manually input data as well, because you're right, having all that information in a single spot not only helps you do a better job of caring for your family and, and being that uh, chief medical officer for your family, but it, it also allows to reduce the fragmentation of care and helps clinicians make a better decision on the incident that's going on right then and now. It still sounds like a huge problem, like a really big problem. You would think that disruptors in the market like Google, Apple, Amazon, or even like big EHR companies, right? They're, they, they must be trying to solve this problem. Or do you think that they could disrupt the industry that much? Or what's, what's the holdup here? Why, why aren't they solving this? I think part of it is a trust component. A lot of people, their health data is very sensitive to them, and they want to make sure that the platform that they're using that has their health information is incredibly secure, that the data is not going to be shared with anyone, and that they don't ever have to worry about you know, someone leveraging their health data for advertising. And I think those are some of the challenges, especially with the, the larger Googles and Apples of the world that, that people face. And then with the electronic health records, you know, they're just in a different business. They're not in the business of helping people have the most efficient care. And, you know, what they do, they do a really great job of it in helping health systems record, track, and bill better. They have a different motive to solve a problem. That's right. Where, you know, we truly want to empower people. And, you know, we know most people aren't working in healthcare, and even the ones that are, could still use a little bit extra guidance from technology. So that's why we've added a couple of different AI engines that sit on top of all of the data, you know, so that we can help people when they're having an immediate issue and guide them to the best, best level of care and give a list of possible conditions, as well as if there's something that might happen in the future, we want to see alert people if they want to know more We'll give them more information, then direct them to the best care in their area. I would imagine that with tools like AI and machine learning, large learning models, you know, all of those tools, we talked a lot about them here on this podcast. They're probably helping in a significant way to also normalizing this data in a way that's actually can be understandable. Because I remember way back when, right, when Apple, not wasn't Apple, when Google had their health product. Right. And they said, go ahead and enter in all your data from all your different places. Right. And first of all, they put the burden on me to do it, which was hard. (laughs) Secondly, when I've got it all in there, it was just a bunch of data. Right. It wasn't there was no insights. There's no meaning. Tell me how AI can can be leveraged now to help, you know, give people insights around their data, because I think that's a really great uh, uh, application of this new technology. Well, it is. And the biggest component is the personalization. You know, I remember, and maybe you remember Humana, they wanted to thank all of their members. So they sent candy bars to everyone, including the diabetic. 
population. And so <laughs> all over social media, you had these people with diabetes going, hey, my insurance company does not know who I am. They sent me a chocolate bar and I'm a diabetic. <laughs> right? So you know, the first thing is really building that inference engine so that we can understand an individual and get them the right information at the right time, you know, by knowing them better than any other platform. And these new types of AI tools, large language models, et cetera, really help us do that. So we've been able to leverage leverage that to build uh, dynamic dashboards. And then the, the two different AI engines I talked about uh, earlier that really leverage more machine learning. So what kind of use cases are you really commonly seeing that people find value in? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a great story. Our chief technology officer, he's like the perfect person for our platform. And he's in the sandwich generation. He's taking care of his, uh, well, actually, he's not taking care of his father's taking care of his mother who has late stage Alzheimer's. He's got um, a couple of kids in their 20s and a five-year-old. And so there's a lot going on with healthcare. And then he's got a couple minor health issues as well. But, you know, he always explains that if anything happened to his dad who takes care of his mother, he and his sister would have no idea what to do. By leveraging HealthBook Plus and what we call our Care Club Plus, which allows us to connect the family members, just like you were talking about your son, all that data lives in a single platform. So our CTO can share the information with his sister if, of course, they get consent from the parents. And uh, so that way, then, if something happened to their dad, quick, easy, they can hop on HealthBook Plus and continue following whatever regimen was going on for mom. Another great example of that is just the individual that you know is fairly healthy but doesn't know when their next preventative task should happen. You know, we alert folks to to that based upon their data set. You know, as well as what's they've been treated for in the past or the preventative screenings that they've had in the past. Mm-hmm. Or you're turning fifty; it's time for a colonoscopy or whatever. Like you could, you can have that kind of programming built into it. So it's interesting. You're you're basing it on ba- basically how their care treatment was before, but also looking at key milestones that that might be important for them. You know, it's fall; consider a flu shot kind of thing. Is that right? Well, exactly. And then also leveraging all that wearable device information. You know, we have a great understanding of people having struggles with sleep or heart rate, level of exercise, all those different components, and then leverage the AI to help people get to that next best health action. And the thing, you know, we're really super focused on is engagement. The next best health action for one person might be just connect your wearable device. You know, for another person, it's go to the clinic and have X test. This isn't a direct-to-consumer product, is it? I mean, you're, you work with health systems and others, right? Is that right? We do. So we work with employers, employee benefits brokers, as well as health systems. And we're having some great conversation with, with payers as well. And that makes sense, right? I mean, to think about it, right? The employers and, and the payers, they're the ones that kind of look at their covered lives is like being part of this, this group and they're trying to manage their care the right way. And then, so we are going to make it available next year, direct to consumer. We're not going to do a marketing push or, you know, work at getting people on the platform direct to consumer, but we want to make it available for those people where an employer or a payer pays for their health book, but then they want to add family members and then family members might want to add additional family members and, you know, keep the tree going. There are other applications that you're seeing here that could potentially uh, benefit from from solutions like yours, right? Oh, absolutely. And the other thing that early next year that we'll have up and rolling is our Health Hub Plus. And what that is, is an API gateway where we can connect to other digital health platforms that are more point solutions. So someone that might have a musculoskeletal issue can instead of going to PT, maybe they start with a virtual PT first, or we identify someone might have an issue and they could benefit from a digital health app first. So we can increase access, reduce costs, and ultimately improve care. But the other component that this API Health Hub does is it allows us to connect to 
many different systems, even within a within a health system. So if they wanted to add, say, billing or scheduling to our platform, it's pretty easy lift to do that so that we can really, truly be that health facilitator and point people in the right direction, both in a digital and a brick and mortar way. Tell me a little bit about, though, you and I kind of chatted beforehand about how you're actually also working to solve another problem, which is burnout of employers. So we do. We've got a, a pathway in, in our AI models that we've built on you know, different data sets really can help with some early identification of when, and in this case, we've been really targeting healthcare workers, when they might have burnout. And then we can send an alert to them and then send them in a, a journey that ultimately gets them to a peer coach or a counselor. And we do it in a very confidential way so that the health system or their employer never knows that there's a mental health issue going on. Because, you know, let's face it, one of the biggest challenges to healthcare workers is any stigma associated with them getting sick, much less a mental health challenge. You know, doctors worry about losing their license if they have a mental health issue, so they just don't get help. And we want to be able to have that modality there to help our healthcare workers get help when they need it, but also give them some early identification if they don't really know. You know, I'm thinking back to the genesis of this actual concept that you have, right, about the the workers on a boat and you're trying to reach them and provide some information. And, you know, as you as you kind of look at that one particular use case, the the exploration of that in the new world of the digitized healthcare consumer, it sounds to me like the, the, it's a nice natural extension. That's like a microcosm of the sick boat worker to what's happening in the United States or what's happening around the world. So, you know, people listening in may want to know a little bit more about you and your company. How can they reach you online? Best way is you can either go to our website, healthbookplus.com. It's easy to remember. Or you can shoot me an email, just chris.turner at healthbookplus.com. You know, love talking to other folks about what we're doing. Um, I'll also put a link to your uh, LinkedIn profile so they can connect with you there too. Well, Chris, thanks for jumping on a little bit and, and sharing with us a little bit, uh, you know, about how you're looking at solving some of the, well, probably what I would call one of the biggest challenges of any healthcare consumer today and uh, putting their health data all together in a convenient, accessible way. Really appreciate you sharing your thoughts, your insights, and some of those case studies. Hey, as always, Chris Boyer, it's always fun chatting with you. Well, always, you know, it's good to catch up after all these years. So um, great to hear how you're doing. And uh, thanks again for your time. All right. Thank you. All right, special thanks to Chris for coming on the show. The other Chris, an additional Chris. <laughs> yeah, no, super, super great to have him on, and uh, always uh, good to have smart people come share their their thoughts and points of view. Again, quick plug for the website touchpoint.health and the TPS report. Rate, review, subscribe, take that survey. Again, you can find it on the TPS report. You can find it on LinkedIn. Uh, we'd love to love to have some feedback from you before we call it a day. Uh, we'll do a couple of recommendations. What do you got? Well, Reed, we are firmly in the 2023 holiday season now, right? It's after Thanksgiving and, you know, the holidays are upon us, whatever holiday you celebrate. Typically at this point in time, there's a lot of gift giving that happens. And I'm going to recommend an app that me and my uh, family use to do gift exchange and, and building gift lists. Uh, of course, you can build them within your respective apps that you like to be in. You can create Amazon gift lists or, you know, Target gift lists or whatever it might be. But the application that we actually use is one that's called Giftster. Giftster, okay? It's an app that you can get for your, for, I, I have it on an iPhone, but it's also available on Android or other mobile devices, right? What's great about it is, is, First of all, you can create your own, your very own list. So you can create a list where you find something you want, you copy the URL into it, and it creates a list that you can then share with other people. And you can, you can you know, share all the different things that you want. Others have access to it if you give them permission to. And if they do purchase it, what happens is on their side, that gift grays out, basically. You can't purchase it. And other people that have access to the list suddenly see 
oh, that gift has been purchased. So there's no duplicate gifting, so to speak, right through this app. It's really handy if you want to share it among friends and, and family. But here's the other th- reason why I like it. Uh, as you know, I have a now one-year-old son in my household, and um, I'm able to create a child account. So I was able to create a gift account, uh, a gifter account uh, and list for my son, and my wife and I can update and put things on that list. And uh, can manage that, you know, until he is old enough to be able to have his own phone and, and manage his own list. We can do this now for him. And, and again, it's very, very handy. The great, the great thing about it is, is you don't really have to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, go to multiple different websites anymore. You can do it all through this one app and you can share this among your friends and family. It's really handy. It's free. Um, and if you're, you know, responsible for doing any kind of gift giving this year among friends, families, whatever, I recommend maybe you should try out Gifster. It's really, the UX UI is really easy. So Cool. I like it. Um, I was thinking, talking to my daughter about something very similar the other day. So it's like, you know, people are always asking, you know, well, what do you want for your birthday? What do you want for Christmas? You know, this is a, sounds like a neat way to, to handle that. So it's great. Yeah. And if you're like me, my Christmas and birthdays are so close together that I just make one list. So that's right. That's what <laughs> both my girls are. So, mm-hmm. all right. Great recommendation. Uh, mine is a little more uh, general, um, or it's not something you can buy, I guess. But I would encourage everybody to find a small town that has a town square and go see the Christmas lights on said town square. Yeah, it's always fun. Uh, I would assume. I guess there's enough, you know, kind of small towns that you could drive to potentially depending on where you live. Uh, maybe there's a main street, maybe there's not a square, but always, always fun to go see. There's usually a Christmas tree that's, you know, uh, been lit and um, the courthouse and all that kind of stuff. So it's always just kind of a fun time of year to, to ride around and look at lights. Uh, so I would recommend that, but maybe uh, do something that uh, involves... Uh, making your way out to maybe a small rural community. So there you go. I like that recommendation. Uh, we have a number of uh, uh, different places here around the Twin Cities to go to, and it's always great to go and watch the lights. Uh, you know, holiday lights are just so fun, and and my little one-year-old boy loves them too. So there you go. There you go. Well, very cool. Uh, thanks, everybody. I hope the holiday season is off to a great start. I uh, would love to hear from you. Reach out. LinkedIn is probably the best way to do that. Uh, certainly rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.